Welcome. You are now listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeiser de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Today on the Paseo Podcast, Manny Ramos joins our show. He is a journalist for the Chicago Sun-Times. We're going to talk to him about his experience as a journalist, and he even has some insight for people that want to get their foot in the door into this profession. It's not easy work. Manny's a busy guy, so we're really looking forward to our conversation with him. We're happy to have him on today. Manny, I'm going to give you the floor. Introduce yourself to our audience. What should they know about you? Yeah, so... um my name is Manny. Um, I'm a reporter with the Chicago Sun-Times. Born and raised in the city of Chicago. I actually was born at Norwegian Hospital, not too far from here. Lived in uh, several neighborhoods throughout the north and, uh, or throughout the west side, as well as the northwest side, from Humboldt Park, Logan Square, Hermosa, Austin. Currently, I live in Belmont Cragen. So I, I, uh, I tend to cover a lot of things that um, range in things of housing, social issues, social injustices, education, economic disinvestment, and uh, try to sort of like provide an alternative look to communities that have often been uh, misreported or underreported in, in in the city. Why did you choose journalism of all the professions? Yeah, I mean, this is not a career we go to make a lot of money in, right? Um, this is sort of like a passion career, you know, um, I have a passion for writing, a passion for storytelling. You know, I, I got into journalism for a lot of different reasons. I, I would like to say my like passion though for like storytelling comes from my grandfather. Uh, you know, you know, rest in peace to him. I mean, uh, for a long time, you know, he would just tell these sort of like majestic stories about him being in New York, him being like a playing pool and billiard and hustling and everything like that. And him moving across from like Puerto Rico to New York to Chicago from having ancestry in like Corsico and like just like these range of topics you never really knew were fact or fiction, right? Sort of like blending the truths. If I can interrupt you too, I feel yeah. like every Puerto Rican in my family has a pool story, a billiard story. <laughs> yeah. Either it's darts or playing pool. Yeah. Like how come I didn't get those genes? Like right. when I play pool, like I suck at it. Yeah, I'm horrible <laughs> at geometry, yeah. right? So it's like <laughs> So I yeah, so it's so funny you said that. My uncle, um, he had a pool table in his basement and every holiday it would be just all of the men in the basement playing pool. While they're doing that, you know, my cousins and and, and I would probably be playing PlayStation or Xbox or something, right? But they're in there drinking a beer, you know, listening to Mark Anthony or whoever playing pool. And it was sort of like just the way it was. Um, and no one ever wanted to play against my grandfather. Um, <laughs> if they did play for play with him, he sort of was like very competitive. He would, if he starts losing, he would like, you know, say some things and everything. Sounds right. right yeah. you know, Sounds but, like my abuela. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um, just like always speaking with him, you know, him being like a huge baseball fan made me want to like play baseball. 
You have an LA Dodgers hat on. Yes. But you're from Chicago. I am. I'm a Dodgers What's fan. up with that? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I mentioned my grandfather earlier. Um, he was like a diehard Sox fan and, uh, and Yankees fan, as you can imagine, but, you know, more so Sox. I mean, at his funeral a couple of years ago, um, we uh, everyone wore Sox apparel, right? Like just to like support his love for the team. Um, so I grew up in sort of like this, I mean, I'm from the west side, north side or northwest side. And I grew up in a very like White Sox family. Um, so we weren't Cubs fans. None of us like the Cubs. There are some traitors within the bloodline, but we're not going to talk about them. But oh my um, god! <laughs> but um, so I I started liking the Dodgers because um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Sandlot. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. So The Sandlot was like one of my favorite movies as a kid, um, and uh, you know, it, at the end of the very the end of the movie, the main character becomes a professional baseball player with the Dodgers, mm. and ever since that, like I sort of idolized him. Like you know, he was. F- so cool you know like he he was just like the embodiment of like what cool is for me you know at the time when I was a kid being an awkward kid in the city but um and I saw that he went to the Dodgers and ever since then like I just you know I I adopted them as my team I still root for the Sox you know like an American League team I'm always going to root for the Sox but um yeah LA Dodgers all the way we just suffered a heartbreaking loss I was about Um, to ask you about that yeah I was about to ask you about Kershaw yeah I don't like Kershaw in the playoffs, I just don't understand. And I don't think Kershaw understands either. Um, mm-hmm. What he did was just, like, it was heartbreaking. Um, but I think there was more of a manager issue with that mm-hmm. game. Um, yeah. They definitely left Kelly out there um, with bases loaded instead of putting Jensen in, and I just didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, uh, it sucks, but there's always next year, right? Yeah. I definitely feel for Kershaw. I mean, that guy... <laughs> He's like one of the best pitchers of his generation. One I mean, of the best he, pitchers the in playoffs. the regular season, and then in the yeah. playoffs, he just he can't can't pull it through. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Hmm. Also, like I played baseball in high school, um, I was never really good at it though, you know. Um, and so that was sort of my passion. I really wanted to become like a professional baseball player. When I found out I wasn't good, I I knew like my storytelling abilities were were, were good. Even from the school that I went to, I always my English teachers would always tell me like, "Oh, you're a pretty good writer. You should probably look more into this." And then that's when it sort of fell in love with like journalism as as like a profession um looking at local writers i mean we talked about ben javarsky mm-hmm. being one of those uh, influences one of yeah. yeah um but also like i envisioned myself doing a lot of like um areas of conflict reporting so like war reporting in like the middle east or north africa or wherever um, but then i realized like as i started like getting older um i wanted to do more storytelling within my communities or communities like the one i grew up in um, knowing that, like, you know, we're often misrepresented in newspapers or in just media in general and TV news, especially mm-hmm. where people come out uh, at moments of tragedy um, instead of at moments of prosperity. And I wanted to sort of tell those prosperous stories, whether it talks about issues of disinvestment, right, or economic decline, um, but still talk about how people within the neighborhood are actually doing things to try to reverse those systemic and curses that we're, we're, we're cursed with, right? Um, and I, I found journalism as a great tool of sort of trying to do that. So in your experience, if there's anybody listening that has a passion for journalism but doesn't know how to get into that world, what were some of the things that you did uh, to kind of hone your craft? Do you have any advice as kind of like a starting point for people that want to become journalists? 
Yeah, the starting point is reading. I would say like you have to read because you have to you have to like with anything you need practice and you need influences, right? You need someone, a, a writer that you look up to and you can see how they construct sentences or they use certain words, right? And then you can sort of apply that to your own writing. Uh, that doesn't mean like you're biting or stealing, right? Like you're just drawing influences and find those reporters that you are, or writers that you really like, read them over and over, continuously know their byline, learn bylines, um, and then start writing yourself. You have to write every day, um, even if it's not going to get published per se. Um, it's just a practice, you know, like when Michael Jordan takes a hundred shots, right? Like he's practicing on his craft and with writing is the same thing. You got to practice on your craft. Mm. And I also like, you know, the industry that, that we're in, um, it really wasn't made out for like folks like me um, or, or like us, right? Like it's an industry that is often underpaid. Um, so we don't have the luxury of like relying on like our parents or grandparents for generational wealth while we sort of pursue this career, right? We have to do more. Like I worked full time while I went to school. I worked full time while I freelanced, um, you know, like, so there is the added extra steps that we got to take. But no, if it's your passion, I mean, it's something that you got to just do. Don't complain, don't cry about it. Just do it. Because at the end of the day, you know, there's always going to be a mediocre white man um, that is not better than you, that's going to get ahead of you. Um, and so it's your job to do twice as hard, more the work than him to get ahead. Um, and I think that's just an important framework to have. Yeah, I, I, I hear that totally. I think one thing that we have to overcome as people of color and not saying this is in any, every case, but just like from my perspective in communications, like sometimes I'm the only person of color in the room. And I think it's easy as a person of color, being the only one in the room to feed into this imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Like, do my words matter? Do my thoughts have value? Do I even deserve to be in this space? But ultimately we got hired for a reason. Yeah. We're in, we're at that. We have a seat at the table because they, our perspective is wanted there. So trying to re remind ourselves once we get our foot in the door, once we're in those spaces, that hell yeah, we deserve to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And we can go toe to toe with anybody else in that room because what we bring to the table does add value. Yeah. And I think imposter syndrome is a real, real thing, right? Like, you know, I'm face. I face that on a daily basis sometimes. Like when I when I turn in a copy and my editor just trashes it, and you know, like I'm like, damn, do I really belong here? You know, mm -hmm. am, am I really a good journalist? Am I a good reporter? Am I a good writer? Um, you know, but you know, you have to sort of reflect back and think like, you, you, like exactly like you said, you're here for a reason, right? Like you're you're in this position. Um, you're lending the voice that you're lending um, for a particular reason, and just trust in yourself and trust that you know, what you do is providing value. And I don't mean to like repeat what you said, but like you said it perfect. So looking at the transitioning a little bit, looking at the current state of journalism, it almost feels like anybody can put the journalism tag next to their name. I think that leads to not the best reporting. Yeah. And there's almost like so much information out there that it's very easy to get lost in that to figure out what is the differentiation between fact and fiction. Are there any pet peeves that you have that you see on a consistent basis where you're just like, why is why do I keep seeing people using this type of word or? I mean, you know, for me, I have a, a big like 
like aggregating news, right? Like that's sort of like a big thing in the industry right now where you have places that are just simply regurgitating original reporting, putting it on their website, maybe sending a hyperlink to the original reporting, but they're just aggregating and rephrasing what you've written or what a reporter has written. So I think that is something that is, as a, a person who spends time on the ground, who actually walks streets and talks with everyday people, um, for stories to just be aggregated into this sort of like atmosphere seems a little bit like lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and not only that, though, like it's just important to have like a like a warm body in neighborhoods. Right. Like it's very important for a reporter to actually be in the streets and talking with folks um, versus just sort of like doing phone calls or you know, coming in for a moment and then leaving, and they call it like parachute journalism, right? Mm-hmm. Where they parachute in, parachute out. Um, and I think it, it takes some time for reporters to like develop sources, and it's 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 it's, you know, and you can't always satisfy your sources. Um, you have to understand that. You're not going to report on everything your sources, you know, send your way. Um, but you know, as long as you're constantly showing your face around, you know, that sort of like lets them know like, okay, at least you're here, right? At least you're trying, you know, I see your face. Um, so I think just being in where, wherever you're reporting, whether it's at the you know state level, if you're at city hall or, or wherever the case may be, um, but being on the ground, I think is very important. Um, in terms of like pet peeves of mine, I mean, I, I think, you know, Sensational writing, um, you know, writing in a way that bears no facts, but just sort of like adding color for for color's sake, you know, like I tweeted this out the other day, like I see a lot of people, a lot of reporters talking like when they're in their in their reports, they mention, you know, a spike in crime. A, a increase in poverty or blighted, right? Like, but then they don't provide any numbers or statistics to support those claims. And when you do something like that, when you mention, you know, there's been, you know, this was actually that happened another uh, the other day, where I saw someone um, wrote like, there's been a recent spike of crime in Humble Park um, over this summer. Uh, residents are saying it's the worst it's been in ten years. Mm-hmm. But that's just not the case. The numbers don't support that, right? Yeah. Um, and I pulled the numbers myself just sort of fact check, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that's a strong statement to make, right? Like, at that point, if the numbers aren't supporting that and you're saying that in your story, you're perpetuating fear. You're perpetuating the idea that this neighborhood is the worst it's ever been in a time that is going in a demographic shift, right? Like, you're feeding into that nonsense. And I, I just think journalists have to do a better job of sort of controlling that sensationalizing within their stories. I am so tired of reading things where it almost feels like the title is there for the purpose of just being clickbait. Sure. And then you open this article up and there's no meat to it. Right. Like, there's a bunch of words, but there's no depth. Right, exactly. Like, I don't really know what this article is trying to say. Yeah. They're not backing up these statements with anything, and which if, leaves me lost. Especially like, you know, when those statements are coming from sources, mm-hmm. right? Like if they feel they can say, let those type of things slide in. But even if your source is a, you know, quote unquote victim, right? Like not everything they say is factually correct. Mm-hmm. And, and your job as a reporter is to sort of filter through that, like filter through the emotion and report out accurately so that people can have that perspective of what is actually going on Um, and not just sort of, you know, like I said, sensationalizing a story that doesn't need to be sensationalized because 
it's already talking about something sad and grim. You're just adding flavor. Just, you know, you don't need that much adobo in a story, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I love like, that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> what, is, what do you do to filter through? Because I'd imagine you get a lot, a lot of people contacting you with certain tips on stories. Mm-hmm. I know you talked about fact checking, but is there anything else that you do to filter through things? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think also being a reporter, you got to be a good judge of character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to meet with a, f- a person and, you know, really sort of just try to under- get get a vibe from them, right? Like, what is their vibe like? You know, do you believe them? Do you feel like they might not be telling the truth? Um, so I think that's just sort of like the base level um, interaction. After that, I think you have to go, it, it depends on what they're claiming, right? Like, you know, if they're claiming, you know, uh, something related to numbers, those numbers are usually, f- you can fact check them. I mean, there's open data sources out there in the city that these numbers can be found and calculated, right? So a lot of my work, I rely a lot on data. Uh, I tend to be data-driven. So fact-checking in that sense is good. But if someone is making a claim at a certain person, um, then that becomes a little bit more difficult. Like, is there a police report Um, that you have to go to the other person? You have to see, get their side of the story. Um, And that can be even more messier because they may say something completely different and you got to find a third or fourth person to corroborate who, who, what person, right? Um, It's all, it's just a process. Like it's a, it's a process. You're sort of like a mini investigator. Um, You're trying to find the truth and um, it all starts with you just getting a feel of your first original source. Hmm. So give us some insight into some of the stories you're working on now. What are some of, what are a couple big stories that are taking up a lot of your time at the Sun-Times? Yeah, so um, I really don't like talking about like the stories I'm working on now because I don't want to be scooped. Oh, right. Um, yes. What are some of the stories you have so, worked on yeah. that are publicly available? <laughs> yes. Um, I'm of course. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, one story I, I recently did that uh, came out, I want to say maybe a month ago, was about mass demolition in Inglewood and West Inglewood um, in terms of the city, uh, you know, um, hiring a wrecking company to come in and demolish a home or a building um, in, the, in those neighborhoods. So um, I mentioned I look a lot at data. I examine um, 10 years worth of demolition data that the city provided um, from 2008 at the the start of the housing crisis to 2018. Um, And I wanted to see what neighborhoods were were experiencing demolitions at a high rate and if they were receiving new construction to replace or replenish its housing stock, right? and I found that Inglewood and West Inglewood suffer the second and third most demolitions across the city, um, while also having some of the worst new constructions um, happening in the city as well. So what uh, you saw was just vast lands of vacant lots. Um, you know, I like to say, I don't like to say it, but it's just like vacant lots turning into vacant blocks, right? Like they mm-hmm. turned into sort of like some of them look like forest preserves because it's just mm-hmm. untamed lawns, untamed trees that are just growing. Alleys sort of have now become sort of like meshed in because there's no more homes there. Um, and I wanted to sort of look at like, well, what are people on the ground doing? Because I think that's very important um, to sort of like what's called like solution style journalism, where like you're providing quote unquote solutions. Um, and looking at like what are everyday folks within the neighborhood and long term residents in the neighborhood doing to sort of like reverse this trend um, or, or try to fix it in, in whatever way they can. And I found a group that was doing just that. Um, you know, they're repurposing these lots for, you know, a nature garden, um, basketball courts for the community, um, as well as when they see a vacant house, uh, 
they sort of like paint on the boarded windows to like beautify it in some way, right? So they don't just look like they're blighted or falling apart. Um, and that really shows that there are people invested in these communities working to every day to do more and more and more. Um, as much as people like to say, well, why aren't they stepping up? There are folks that are stepping up and doing beyond what they need to do. Um, a lot of times free of their charge, volunteering their time. And it's, um, it's important to sort of like tell those stories as well and not just talk about like, the systemic problem that the city has done to this one neighborhood. Yeah, I think stories like that are important. That's not something you normally hear yeah. on the nightly news. I've also been reporting on, um, yeah, that's so true. Um, I've also been reporting on sort of like um, the importance of murals in Chicago. Um, yeah. And I've done a, a recent one that came out earlier this summer about Humboldt Park. Um, spoke with a lot of the local artists here, like uh, Christian Roldan, um, as well as Luis. And we talked about you know, what type of art is happening around here, um, why they got into this sort of like public art world um, and how sort of murals play into that sort of cultural library um, or advertising uh, within the community. I just recently published a story with Sam Kirk, who's done some work along here as well. Um, that was a really good story to uh, suggest checking that out as well. Nice. Yeah, I think just speaking of reporting on stories, if there's anything in our city that... Uh, archives memorializes our history. Yeah. It's, it's these murals. And Paseo Boricua especially, we have one of the largest concentrations of murals in the city. Mm. I think Humble Park's murals are unique in the way that they're politically driven. Mm -hmm. um, not just what's happening locally, but what's happening on the island. Mm. And they provide a commentary on everything from, you know, the diaspora to, to everything that's happening here um, and, and, and abroad, um, where we're talking about our freedom fighters um, and what it's like to be a colonial status 100 plus years later. Yeah, that's a great point. So Manny, as a journalist, you talked about Inglewood, uh, you talked about the murals here on Paseo. Um, let's talk a little bit about Humble Park specifically. It is a ever gentrifying area of the city. And we have a lot of journalists that do cover neighborhoods going through similar realities. When it comes to Humble Park and neighborhoods like it, what do you feel the responsibility of journalists are in covering neighborhoods like Humble Park? Yeah, I think the the responsibility of a reporter or journalist covering areas like Humble Park that where the demographic is is changing rapidly over the last ten years, um, and even more so within the last five, right? Like, it's it's essential and vital for the reporter to to talk to the people who have invested in a community for for decades, right? Like when we talk about Humble Park, we're talking about like setting up meetings with the cultural center for one, right? Like meeting with the leaders here that have been investing their time and blood, sweat, and tears in the community to make it a better and more viable place to live for its longtime residents and see what activities they're doing to sort of like combat that gentrification or combat the displacement, whether it's advocating or, or fighting for affordable housing um, or even just like promoting cultural, um, you know, opportunities within communities like this. Now, I would be the first to admit that um, I myself um, haven't invested enough time into doing this type of reporting that I wish I could have. Um, but I still think it's very important to prevent those alternative perspectives um, and not just be very pro-development driven in your reporting, not just talking about, you know, a new cafe opening or a new condo uh, multiplex opening up or, or the new renderings of what it looks like, right? Actually talking about maybe what 
that condo multiplex is replacing, um, what was there before it. Um, talking about the significance of, you know, someone living in a neighborhood and seeing a home that they probably have, you know, history in and, and what it's like for that house no longer to be there. Um, you know, and we, we offhand when we talk about gentrification, if someone comes into a neighborhood that they probably left, you know, five years ago and they always mention, wow, this place looks completely different now. Right. Well, what did it look like of old? Right. What was it like beforehand? And talking to the folks that are still here, trying to preserve some of that originality um, before it gets sort of diluted or watered down. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. We in, in my conversations with people, especially people that grew up in Humble Park, may have left, come back and say, oh, this neighborhood's a lot better now. And the first thought that comes into my mind is better for who? Right. And what are you com- what are you comparing that to? Or when you say better, it's like, you know, the people who lived there before weren't good enough. You know what I'm saying? Like it is that's such a loaded statement. You know, mm-hmm. When when people say that, like there's so much so much to unpack with a word like that because first off, like you mentioned, who is it better for? Um, but who isn't it better for now, right? Like, who is being pushed out of a neighborhood that they loved, right? Who, who is being, you know, replaced? Um, and and when they talk about like just just that itself is just something that needs to be examined. Yeah. Context is essential yeah. when covering neighborhoods like this. I, I loved your point about it's not just about the new coffee shop or new development. But looking at those stories holistically, I, I do want to talk about how our listeners can keep up with you and stay connected with you. You could follow me, read the Sun Times, subscribe, um, and uh, you could follow me on Twitter um, at underscore Manuel Ramos underscore. So two underscores in the beginning and in the front, um, and so underscore M A N U E L R A M O S and then underscore. Um, or uh, that's pretty much it. Or you can follow me on Instagram um, at Manny Ranks, and uh, yeah. Great. Yeah. It is a Twitter feed worth following. I can attest to that. <laughs> so definitely, definitely keep up to date with Manny. Manny, thank you for being on the show. Yeah. We thanks for having it. me. Yeah. I'll have you on again soon. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Special thanks again to Manny Ramos for coming on the show. It's important to support our journalists, especially ones that approach it with the intentionality that Manny does. So really appreciative of having him on the show. And hopefully we have him on again. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at Basil Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode, 
This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. 